So, we're in a series, The House That God Built, and today uh, we're going to be in Ephesians 4, and it's Mother's Day. So, it's very common on Mother's Day to honor the mothers. I have no problem with that. I think it's a wonderful idea to do that, but we're going to do it a little bit different today. I want to take a look at, um, you can tell a lot about somebody by what happens to them when they're under stress, okay? So I want you to see the plight of mothers and women. So the women are the larger group and the mothers are the smaller group. And I want you to capture a grasp in scripture of, of what happens to women. I think some of you know, I've been on this podcast for 15, 16 weeks now, um, and I'm getting feedback. I'm out with Lisa Harper, and she told me that, you know, you understand conceptually what's like for women, but you're about to get a lesson. Because she reaches out to several million women every year. So I've been getting emails from all over the West, the Western nations. So Australia, New Zealand, UK, um, Canada, all over the U.S., other places. And I've been hearing stories from these women about what it's like uh, and how oppressed it feels to them. Okay? Not oppressed in culture. Not that. Oppressed in churches, evangelical churches in particular. And it has, it's, honestly, it's kind of rocked my world to hear. She was right. It's, it's an eye-opening lesson to hear. I confess I'm a six-foot-two Caucasian. Life is easy for me, okay? Can't change that. That's who I am. And, um, <clears throat> but it isn't that way with a lot of people, a lot of women. For example, my wife, Nancy, she, uh, she went to engineering college a few years ago, uh, back when there weren't many at all. And then she came to work in a power plant. That's where I met her uh, as a nuclear engineering. She came to work in a power plant. And again, very few women at that time. And she was always feeling that pressure. And, um, and then she, six, seven years ago, went to work for XL Energy, where she does electrical construction. She doesn't know I'm going to, I did this to her the first service. And she was like, <laughs> so, um, but when she first started the job, here's what I was hearing when she would come home. Now, to her, it's natural. She experiences all the time. Now, I'm, I'm, these are my words, not hers, but she'd come home from a construction site, and, and one of the guys on the construction site will say, kind of little woman, let me show you how it's done. And she said, no, actually, I'm the electrical engineer. Let me tell you how it's done. And, okay, I'm proud of her for that, but to put up with that day after day, I never had that. Never had that. So I'm getting these emails from all over the world. I had one lady write me and say, you know, I'm seminary trained, and uh, I've taught for 30 years. And so I retired, moved here, and um, to this town, there's not a single church that'll let me teach unless I teach children. That's what that is. I had another lady email me, and she said, I heard your podcast today, and uh, I started to weep. My husband came in, and we listened to your podcast five times, and I said, could it be? that there's actually a pastor out there that believes in grace regarding women. And I'm not going to lie to you. I've just been more than once. I've sat at my desk back there getting these emails and responding to them. And I just wept and said, God, I'm so sorry that we took this wonderful gift that you gave us and butchered it so badly. And uh, just apologize. And, um, and so I want to talk about women and then the subgroup of mothers because they're, they're even more intensely engaged 
uh, than the others. I just said to one of the mothers visiting back there with like 18 kids lined up in the row, you're very busy. <laughs> and um, I, know, I, I know what it's like from a distance because we had four kids. You see, in the ancient world, the uh, fathers weren't connected to their kids. The concept of fatherhood, that was introduced with Jesus when he came in and said, my heavenly father, he is my father. That, that's not the way they thought because the dads didn't know their children. The typical father may have had several wives, and the way it worked was he was the paterfamilias. He's in charge of everything, and he would say to all of his wives, this is what I want you to do with your families. And so the wives were actually the business people who ran their families. They called them the materfamilias. So he'd say, Let's, our God is Zeus, so you're expected to uh, worship Zeus. That's your job, to raise my children. Well, he's off fighting wars and doing what guys love to do. And so the mothers raised the children. They didn't have that type of relationship as we think of when we think of our Father in heaven. That was introduced by Jesus um, to say an entirely new relationship has come on the earth. And he models for us how to approach God as a father, a healthy father, not what many of us have gotten, okay? And so that's the beginning point of understanding this ancient world ever since the fall uh, it's been a man's world. Let's just be honest and call it what it is. It's changing. It's better today, but it's still a man's world. I do not have to put up with the things that uh, many of you as women have had to put up. So <clears throat> what this does is this predisposes us to look at texts a certain way. For example, First Peter 3, wives in the same way submit yourselves to your own husbands. Okay? What word did you hear? Submit right? Okay, now you know my hermeneutical approach, my interpretive approach. As the, as the Bible unfolds, you watch God stepping into history, and as he steps into history, he begins to fix things that are broken, okay? That's what he does. And so when you're way down here, 2,000 years later, and you're looking back at the Bible, it's very archaic to us. Let's be honest, it really is. And so we like to stick to the passages that are familiar to us, the ones that bring us joy, some of the Psalms and some of the New Testament. I've maintained all along that as long as we focus on the peace, love, and happiness text, we look like Hinduism, okay? And so uh, they, until we get into the underbelly of how he's dealing with issues and culture way back then, and so when God steps in, if you're on this side of it and you see him step in, it's very refreshing to you. For example, in Ephesians 5, we'll look at this next week, uh, it says, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. There's just one problem with that. The word, verb submit is not in that passage. Okay? We'll find out next week. The verse before is what starts it. Uh, submit yourselves to one another. I believe it's the first time in history anybody said that. So if you're a woman and you're under, you're under a husband legally, okay? Legally. So you have to obey. Those are the words in the um, household codes of the first century. You have to obey. That's a legal term. You don't obey the police, what happens? You get a ticket. You don't obey the bo your boss, what happens? You get fired. And to hear that language change to submission, which is now a voluntary action to appear, not a legal term. Well, if you're a woman in that first century and, uh, and you hear these words for the first time, submit yourselves to one another, men and women. I mean, that's got to be some of the best news in the world. It's beginning to change world history away from the male-dominated, owned, legal word, if you will. 
But our natural tendency is to take our values from today, which is way down there, and import them back into today. That's naturally what we do. And so we read this language and we hear a very different word. For example, 1 Peter 3. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands. Okay? You hear the word submit. Well, first of all, that's not a bad word. That's a good word. That's now symbolizing that we are equal and we do something with each other. But there's another phrase here, in the same way. In the same way as what? Well, if you look at the paragraph before, slaves, in reverent fear, submit yourselves to your masters. Not only to those who are good, considerate, but also to those who are harsh. In the same way, now be careful before you start throwing rocks. In the same way, wives, submit to your, same way as what? As slaves. Oh, wait a minute here. But then you move on down to verse 7. Husbands, in the same way. Exact same language. Exact same language. Same way as what? These two earlier groups. You see, what Peter and Paul are both doing is they're doing this. We'll look at Ephesians 5 next week where you'll see it very clearly. But Peter's doing the same thing. And he's saying, it is a man's world. No wonder he's telling the husbands to live with your wives in an understanding way. So picture this scenario, because I think this is the background of 1 Peter 3. So as, uh, as a husband, I have authority over all my wives, okay? Uh, up until this time, up until the first century, they were owned by me. There are certain places now in the Roman Empire where that's starting to change, but it's still there, ownership. So for the wife to disobey the husband could result in some places, either execution or divorce, okay? Which was to commit her to destitution. And so the husband comes home one day and says, our God is Zeus and you don't have a choice. And one of the wives says, but I just became a Christian, okay? What's she gonna do? She has no recourse, very little recourse at this time of world history. So when you read 1 Peter 3, what he's saying to her is, just be patient. Win him over about without a word. Don't say a word. Let him look at you and compare you to the others, and he'll see something different. Now, let's reverse the scenario. <clears throat> let's say I become a Christian. Now I said all my wives. Now our, our God is Jesus, so you've got to worship him. Well, if none of the wives have come to Christ, how are they going to respond? Again, they're in the same boat. So what's the next say? Husbands in the same way. Live with your wives in an understanding way. They're not in the same position as you. And so be very careful. Be very gentle with them. And this, these passages give us insight and the clues into the first century world and what it was like for them. And you see Jesus beginning to break all those barriers down. For example, I think he's the first rabbi in history that took women to be disciples. And Luke, when the uh, woman doubled over, she's, you know, doubled over like this, she walks up to him right in the middle of teaching in the uh, synagogue. He didn't do that. First of all, the women didn't come in there and learn. But she walks right up to him. <clears throat> Does he rebuke her? No. He lays his hands on her and heals her. Shows her honor and respect and dignity. You see that everywhere you look in the scriptures, that he's beginning to break these molds. And now you have this language coming out. From Peter at Pentecost, your sons and your daughters will prophesy and dream dreams. You have 1 Corinthians where if anyone, anyone receives a word from the Lord or prophecy, they can share it, okay? They can, they can teach. They can do all these things. 
and yeah, there's no question that in some places he was putting some restrictions in place. But you have to look at the New Testament as, uh, I, here's how I look at it, I'll put it that way. Um, it's, it's the first truly ethnically diverse pluralistic model. And in fact, I'd say it's the only one in the world. Because you have Corinth are written to Greeks, Romans is written to Italians, different ethnic group. The church is in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, it's a different ethnic group. Titus is written to a Mediterranean island culture, different ethnic group. James is written to Jewish Christians as a different ethnic group. And so what you have is you have this map of the nations of the ancient world, and Paul and Peter and the other authors are navigating the new covenant within the cultural complexities of that local setting. Okay? Does that make sense? So you come up with differences. You have, for example, in the First Corinthians, young widows should stay single. But in First Timothy 5 to Ephesus, the young widows should remarry. In First Timothy, written to Ephesus, you have him putting some restraints on women. But in Philippi, Yodia and Syntyche are leaders in the church. In Rome, you have Junius, one of the female apostles. And so the, the rules are not, at this level, are not all consistent, okay? But what you don't find anywhere is any shaming, condemning, judging. You don't find that. In fact, I'm convinced a careful study of God's word reveals a very unique pattern. The people he displays his wrath. Remember from Leviticus a year ago, we had the four groups, clean, unclean, I'm sorry, sorry, wrong end. Holy, clean, unclean, and evil. This is where his wrath is vented right here to this group, which is not of you. You don't see it rented, vented against his followers unless you're a leader. Moses, David, Pharisees. They get held to an entirely different standard. And I'm very well aware of the passage that says, let not many of you become teachers, knowing you will incur a stricter judgment. That's the passage that keeps me up at night and makes me shake in my boots. Whatever I'm going to share, I better be certain of it very careful with it so that's where his anger is vented not with common people especially not with women you have uh, the woman caught in adultery neither do i judge you or condemn you you have zacchaeus the tax collector right chief tax collector he's very kind to the people at this level the common level that are not trained professionals if you will and that's kind of the background to this to this whole story. So um, when you turn to Ephesians, thank you for reading it, Deb. This is the end of chapter four, and we're looking at what does this house look like that God is building? The last chapter, last verse in chapter four, be kind, be compassionate to one another, forgive one another. Why? Because they repent? No. Because God has already forgiven you in Christ on the cross. That's why you forgive. That's the reason. You forgive because you've already been forgiven. And so what happens is we, we, Jesus begins to reveal the truth about who we are in his teachings, okay? So everywhere I go, I, uh, every country I go in, they have questions about sexual orientation, husband and wife, relationship, all of it. Every nation is struggling with this, these ideas. And so I asked them one time, when Jesus said that, uh, and this is where um, I would call abusive churches, and if you pay any attention to the church scene at all, 
you're well aware that it looks like God is cleaning house in the United States. Don't know about the other countries. You're probably familiar with Carl Lentz, New York City, one of the biggest churches. You're probably familiar with uh, John MacArthur. You're probably familiar with uh, Mark Driscoll. These guys are all being exposed in all kinds of ways. There are now church, there are Christian groups out there that just monitor what's happening in churches. So my commitment to you is you will never experience for me shame, condemnation, or judgment. That's never going to happen. Not as long as I'm here. And now I'm hearing back from all these women, and they all have these stories. It's just appalling the way they're being treated by their pastors. We've been given one of the most precious, the most precious gift in the world, aside from Christ. That's our wives. That's our women. Right here. And what do we do? We do this with them. That's not our church. Never will be as long as I'm here. Won't be. It's not the way it works. You know, when Jesus said that, I asked, let me just ask the question, how many of you have gotten angry in the last two or three weeks? Let me see. You know what? You just all admitted to being murderers. I'd ask you how many of you lusted, but you're a little bit hesitant to raise your hand on that one. Okay? You just admitted to being murderers. Do you think Jesus was joking when he said that if you get angry, you've already committed murder in here? Do you think that's a joke? When he says that murderers will not inherit the kingdom of God, do you think that's a joke? It's not. You know what that means? Not a single one of you, not a single one of you will make it into the kingdom. Not one. Now you're beginning to understand why the cross is so critical. That's our only hope. And I'm not ashamed of that. I'm not ashamed to tell anybody anywhere in the world in any scenario my belief because that's our only hope is the cross. Now they have the freedom to reject it. They can mock me. Some do. They can yell at me. They haven't done that. They can spit on me. haven't done that. They can slug me. They haven't done that yet. But that's okay. I'm not ashamed of being a Christian because I realize that not one single person or as Paul says in Romans 3, there's no one who does good. Not even one. So when Paul says, let our church be defined by kindness, compassion, and forgiveness, you know what we learned right away? We can't do that on our own. It's not possible. You can't do it. Otherwise, you wouldn't have to tell us. So if you see people pretending to be kind, you heard the word pretend? That's what's happening. And so that's how he finishes Ephesians 4. So we should be a church characterized by those terms. So what do those terms actually mean? What about kindness and compassion? If you're here for Mission Sunday, you heard me make, uh, having fun with uh, Cindy McDonald up here um, about Chesed Ministries in uh, Nigeria. My friend started Chesed Ministries. That's a Hebrew term, which we translate usually love, mercy, compassion, uh, commitment, covenant, all that. It's a word used mostly of God, and it's, this, and it's telling us what his love is for us. God is a God of chesed, of incredible love and commitment. In Genesis 15, when he cut the animals in half, and he walked down them to cut the covenant, and he said, this is what's going to happen to me if I don't fulfill my covenant love to you. And that's the word that's behind this compassion and kindness. 
everything we do should be demonstrated with this level of commitment to each other, but especially in our marriages. That's where it starts. That level of covenant, that level of kindness, that level of compassion, that should define everything that we do, especially in gender relations. So um, expressing this kind of love is what God is after. Look at Hosea 6.6. You can see it here. Fascinating passage. I desire mercy. There's this word chesed that we could define loving kindness, compassion, mercy. I desire that, not sacrifice. He's the one that commanded the sacrifices. But he said, what I really desire is your loving commitment to one another. That's far more important than ritual. Jesus quoted this verse twice in his teaching. He only quoted the Leviticus passage, love your neighbor as yourself, only once. This one he quoted twice. That tells you how important it is. Okay? That this church, we should all as Christians be committed first and foremost to this very dedicated covenant love, kindness, compassion with one another. Okay? But then we learn from Galatians 5.22, another thing about this concept of uh, kindness. It's the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness. I was talking to the teenagers, I don't know, two or three months ago, January or whatever it was, and we were talking about sin. Um, just when I go in there, where they brought it up. And so we talked about how does God get upset or angry when you sin? I go, no, not at all. He laughs at you. What? No, God doesn't. Why, why in the world would he get upset? He's God. He's omniscient. Didn't he already know the worst sin you're going to commit on the day you committed it? He looks at you like, eh, there's Howard. He's being an idiot again. We're going to have to help him. So they said, and they said, well, then what does he do when you sin? I said, he uses your sin to do two things, shape you into his image and, and use it in ministry. And they said, how's that? And I said, well, you're going down the road and then you decide to do something stupid and you get over here. Pretty soon you find yourself in trouble and you go, I'm not very happy. And God chuckles. Any grandparents in here? Yeah, a few, huh? We just got done with the week with our kids and our grandkids. And we had so much fun watching them push against the parents and the parents pushing back. Nancy and I looked at each other and just kind of chuckled and said, look at that, isn't that fun to watch? Not worried about them at all. Well, that's how if I react and that's how most grandparents react, why wouldn't God react that way? He goes, yeah, I know you're not happy. Come on, let's put you back over here. Suddenly so you go a little bit further. Now you go over here and do something stupid. And, um, and so God then... You say, I'm not happy. And God chuckles and said, I know, let's get you back over here. So my version of God is that when I do something stupid, the father looks at Jesus sitting next to him and goes, Howard's an idiot. We're going to have to help him again. I think they laugh. He's so pleased with us. Okay? So they said, but the teen said, but he lets us do that. I said, yeah, Galatians 5, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Just don't use your freedom to sin. 5 verse 13. So he gives you to freedom and he shows grace. He's not angry with you at all. That happened. That was satisfied at the cross. That's what propitiation is. Satisfaction of God's wrath. So remember the categories. Holy, clean, unclean, evil. Here's where the wrath of God is vented. Not against you. So they said, okay, well, I want to make sure we get this clear. When we sin, God is not angry with us. No. It's like I'm not angry with you when you sin. I've told you that many times. No shame, no judgment, no condemnation. Laughter, yes. 
That's how I feel, feel with God. Because you got yourself in a jam, and I'd love to help you out. No shame, none of that. So God's not angry with us. He gives us freedom to sin, and he shows us grace every time we sin. Exactly, you got it. And then they sprung the trap. Well, if that's the case, why don't we keep on sinning so we get more grace? That's Romans 6, 1. Shouldn't we keep sinning so that grace will multiply? And I said, absolutely. You guys want to sin? Sin your heart out. Just don't tell your parents I told you that. And you'll experience grace. But don't confuse grace with joy. Grace comes because of the cross and the sacrifice of Jesus. Put that verse back up in Galatians. Joy comes as part of the fruit of the Spirit. Okay? Love, joy, peace, shalom, patience. You see, you experience grace because you're a believer. You experience joy because you're faithful. It's right there. Because you're faithful. Kindness is a fruit of the Spirit. You're not faithful to the Lord. You're not going to be a kind person. You're also not going to be a joyful one. You're going to experience grace. Absolutely, you will. But you're not going to, ex- you're not going to experience joy. So I explained it to them. So you can experience grace. Sure, a drug addict that comes to Christ is going through uh, addiction issues. Yeah, they experience grace, just not joy. You want to experience joy? Start walking with the Lord, and then you experience joy. You get both. And you can see them all go, oh, that's why we're faithful. That's the reason why. And so in the ancient world, where women had much less status than today, kindness and compassion would have been important. It would have been significant. Wives, women, figure this, you're owned. You're either owned by your father or another man when he, he, he gives you to somebody else to be married. You're owned. Okay? And you, you don't have much control over life. You really don't. You just don't have that kind of control. And so to, for somebody to find a husband who's going to show you kindness was a wonderful, wonderful thing. I'm going to read you a story out of Luke chapter 7 where Jesus actually did this. Verse 11. So Jesus went to a town called Nain and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out. The only son of his mother, who was a widow, he comes across a widow who's lost a husband and her only son. She has no means of caring for herself now. None whatsoever. Okay? I mean, this is a tragic, tragic story. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, what happened? His heart went out to her. That's compassion. That's chesed. I care about you. And what did he say? Don't cry. Then he went up and touched the bier where they were carrying the, the young man on. And the bearer, stood, the bearer stood still and he said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Boy, is that an act of compassion for a woman who's now so destitute. They were all filled with awe and praised God. You see, that's what happens when you show compassion. We are the ones, because it's the fruit of the Spirit, who can show true kindness and compassion. That's us. The world can't. So as we practice kindness and compassion, our church should be defined by this 
then it becomes a magnet to draw people. That's why wherever I am, wherever I am in the world, doesn't matter what's going on, I try my very hardest with a lot of prayer just to be kind to the people I'm with. So I'm on an airplane, which I paid in good money for my seat, and there's a, this happened just on the way to Kenya, and there's a mother whose daughter is separated, I said, oh, you have my seat. And she was stunned, and the flight attendant said, you paid for that seat. I said, yeah, but I want her daughter to be with her. So I went and sat next to somebody else and had a discussion about Christ. It all works out. <laughs> the result was to praise God, and that should define who we are. Okay? That should define it. But what about forgiveness? Let me say a word about forgiveness. Forgiveness is not you pretending you weren't hurt. That's not forgiveness. Forgiveness is not you ignoring it. It's not, forgiveness is not you going to counseling so you don't hurt anymore. That's not anything about forgiveness. Forgiveness is just the opposite. Also, it's not forgetting. Only God can forget. With God, it's an event. With us, it's a process in a broken world. What is forgiveness? You making the conscious decision to honor somebody by remembering what they did against you and choosing not to hold it against them. That's what forgiveness is. If you're a parent, you have to practice a life of forgiveness with your children because they're going to sin against you. It's just the way life is. It's choosing to remember it, but not hold them accountable, not penalize them anymore. It's making a commitment that I'm going to love you because you're made in the image of God. What does Paul say at the end of Ephesians 4? Forgive one another because God in Christ has already forgiven you. That's what the cross is all about. You don't forgive people because they repent or apologize. In fact, your worst enemies aren't going to do that. You're still commanded to love them. Forgive them. You forgive people because you are forgiven. That's the reason. These three things make up the very uh, heart of reconciliation. We'll come back to that in just a minute. Okay, I'm going to read you this next story in Luke, and you're going to see the last verse up there. Okay? Um, Luke uh, 7, verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life. How do they know? I mean, how do you want that moniker? Huh? Yep. You know, there's Mr. Dayton over there. He's a sinner. Right? How would you like to be known for that? Yet that's how she's known. Who lived a sinful life, probably was a prostitute, something like that. She learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, weeping, this is a soft heart. We're talking one of the lowest people in the strata in society. She's probably been mocked, abused, spit on, shamed, everything you can think of. And she goes to Jesus and she's weeping. That's why conversions always come from the lower part of strata. She began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed his feet, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited saw this, he said to himself, if this man, talking about Jesus, were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. 
So Jesus responds. He knows what he's thinking. He said, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher. He said, it's challenging. Go ahead, come on, tell me. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Which one of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. Jesus said, you have judged correctly. Then he turned toward the woman. It's right here, but he's talking to Simon. He said, you see this woman here, Simon? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, which was a massive cultural faux pas. That was the Pharisees' way of shaming Jesus publicly. That Jesus is not to be uh, shamed. But this woman has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't put, even put any oil on my head. That's to refresh him from being outside. Um, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, this is verse 47. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. Whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Her love is what shows out. That's what shines in forgiveness. Is a commitment. There's that chesed, the kindness, that compassion, that covenant, that promise to love, to forgive, no matter what happens. That's what reveals it to the world right there. You follow that? That should define our church. We have an example. Do you want us to be that kind of church? I'm getting feedback from all over the world with pastors like this. It's not going to happen while I'm here. First of all, I'm not wired that way. Theologically, in addition, I don't believe in it. Said many times, if you're struggling with sin, come talk. You won't find shaming, no, con no condemnation, no judgment. You'll find laughter. Oh, you got yourself in trouble, did you? Let's see if we can get you out of it. Because I believe that's the God that we serve, that's just filled with that chesed, that deep, passionate love. I'm so grateful for the cross, where that's where judgment was taken care of at the cross. It's done now. You all know the verse, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, they're a new creature. The old is gone, the new is here. Father, thank you. Thank you for sending us your son. Thank you for not holding a grudge against us. Thank you for showing us kindness, compassion, mercy, deep love, covenant, forgiveness, all of that. Father, thanks for, thanks for just, I don't know how to say it, just for being a wonderful God toward us. We are grateful. We pray these things in your son's name, Jesus. Amen.